You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 34 with Stephanie Roth Goldberg. Stephanie is a licensed clinical social worker, a certified eating disorder supervisor, and a psychoanalyst in New York City. She's the owner of a small group practice focusing on treating eating disorders and also teaches at William Allenson White Institute in the city, which is an analytic institute. Stephanie's niche is working within the intersection of eating disorders and sports, specifically endurance sports. So we're going to be talking in particular about running in this conversation. Stephanie herself is a runner and a triathlete and knows a bit about running. So definitely more than me because my experience running is in Jackrabbit. Anyways, what I love about Stephanie's approach is that she's very into incorporating movement into eating disorder treatment. So very often part of a meal plan or a movement plan is to completely eradicate or get rid of, just not engage in movement at all. And it's sort of like a one size fits all prescription for eating disorder treatment. And Stephanie looks at each individual separately, sort of looking at is movement something that's going to be helpful at this point in particular in your recovery? And if so, then there is no reason to cut it out. So I love that particular spin. So we're going to talk about that spin and running in general, like I mentioned. So let's just jump right in. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited for this. You know what? Maybe before we jump in, we're going to talk about running. Before we jump into a conversation, can you just introduce, like, who are you? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this also. My name is Stephanie Roth Goldberg. I am a psychotherapist and a psychoanalyst in New York City. I have a small group practice where we focus on eating disorders and my specialty, as well as one of the clinicians who work with me is working within that intersection of eating disorders and sports. I primarily work in the endurance sports realm of things. The other clinician at my practice, they do, they're a little more well-versed in some team sports that they actually were a part of growing up. So But yeah, I'm also, I train psychoanalytically at the William Allenson White Institute in Manhattan, where I also teach on this subject of the intersection of sports and eating disorders. I'm a mom. I'm also an athlete. And there we have it. So what don't you do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I love this combination of you're an eating disorder therapist, you're a psychoanalyst, and you focus on endurance. So like, running is a good example of that. Yes. Yes. And I think that it's so, it's such an important, like almost niche. Cause sometimes we say, Oh, athletes or just eating disorders in general, and we have to really narrow it down. So what's your thing and what is the thing that you're struggling with and what is the specifics of how it comes out for each individual patient or client? And when we think about running, we can sort of, <laughs> run away with that. 
I'm thinking about even just setting the tone for where we're going to go with this is what does a healthy relationship with running look like? Yeah, I think it could look different for people of different capabilities, let's say. So I think a really healthy relationship can begin with just the idea that there's no limits placed on it. If you want to go out for a run, you do that, you listen to your body. Okay, this is enough. I'm going to walk, I'm going to run, I'm going to walk, I'm going to run. And then I think for people who are, you know, more engaged in the sport, a healthy relationship really comes in when it's something you can integrate into your life, as opposed to put ahead of perhaps other responsibilities, family commitments, that kind of thing, which I have seen happen many times where people prioritize the sport as opposed to making it fit into their life. One of the big things I talk a lot about, and this is true of any sport, any exercise, any person is how tied the sport or in this instance, running is to eating. So if they are separate, that's wonderful. That's what we could define as a healthy relationship. Of course, there's some nuance there because you have to, if you're going for a long time, feed yourself, nourish yourself properly. But when people sort of tie exercise to, oh, I've eaten this big meal. I need to go to the gym. Or I'm going to be eating this thing. I'm going to be eating out, birthday party, et cetera. I'm going to go to the gym beforehand or go for a run. That's really an indicator of an unhealthy relationship to both food and exercise. I could keep going, but I'd No, I think that gives us a a bit of a snapshot. And then, like you said, it's going to be different for each individual. So some of these might resonate, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this is the only way that it looks. I also think that there's a piece of this that has to do with regulating our emotions or mood. So, I mean, we so often hear that movement, especially running, is such a great mood stabilizer. And uh, like we talk about the runner's high. And when does that become something that's part of your life and it helps you to, this is what I use to regulate my mood completely. Yeah. This is something I talk. I'm so glad you asked this question. I talk a lot about this. So one of the defining characteristics of what we could call excessive exercise in general is if that is your only tool of emotional regulation, that is not a good thing because what that means is that you would have a hard time. Let's say you went for a run in the morning and then you got into a fight with your boss or your boss did something, you know, that made you upset in the afternoon. You probably don't need to go out for another run or go to the gym. Right. But so you need other tools in your toolbox. And if exercise is your only way of emotionally regulating, that often leads to overdoing it, overuse injuries. Again, this idea of sort of putting that ahead of maybe other responsibilities, And so you're right. That is a very big defining characteristic of what we could say is healthy versus unhealthy relationship. Yeah. And I think the emphasis here is that we're not ignoring the fact that it does help usually with like mood stabilization over time, or that there is a thing that you feel pretty good after a run for the most part. Um, We're not ignoring that that's the case for a lot of people. Well, the thing about that is that's true. And, you know, there's actually research being done that shows even 10 minutes a day of somewhat of an active specifically running can release some of those brain chemicals. But similarly to if you were given a medication, you wouldn't take it in the morning and then say, oh, now I'm having a bad afternoon. Let me take an extra dose of this. Right. So it's right. the benefits 
should in theory, right? Like they're also lasting. The runner's high doesn't last you throughout the day, but your brain chemicals, you did get that hit of endorphins that should last. And you're right. I mean, research will show over and over again that running in particular more than other sports is very helpful with depression and anxiety because what happens in the brain often stimulates what people are looking for SSRIs to do. That's not to say don't also need SSRIs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I love, I love what you're just saying before about the medication, because if we think about the way that people's brains sort of like take, uh, I don't want nutrition advice or, or health advice, definitely with a grain of salt, but when let's say they hear, oh, 10 minutes a day is good for you. They're like, well, I'm going to do an hour as opposed <laughs> to if you say taking a multivitamin every day is good for you. Well, I'm going to take 10, you know, right. <laughs> it's not, not the best idea. I don't know. Running is such a fascinating topic to me because I've always admired runners. I'm not a runner. I've definitely tried. I don't know. Is it a thing for like different body types to gravitate toward different types of movement? Because sometimes I wonder if like, I just don't have the legs for it or that's just made up in my head. So I think that probably it's a little bit, bit of both. I think that different body tapes gravitate towards different movements, but I think that's typically because they feel safe doing that. And so when we think of historically what we've been shown as a runner's body, it's a very specific idealized body type. And so I think if it's hard for people and they're not in that body, they might think, oh, well, this is why people like me don't run. Right. <laughs> and so you might give up easier. Whereas I think now very slowly, we're getting to see that a runner's body could be anybody. You don't need to look a certain way, but also running is hard. So it takes a little bit of that. Okay. This is a little hard. And that's why generally when people start, there's a run walk component. Like you shouldn't just go out and think you can run for several miles. That would really be painful. And therefore people might not like it if that's what you're trying to do from the start. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a good point, the painful piece versus discomfort, because especially as you're building up, it is pretty uncomfortable, especially if you've not had to breathe this way or move your body in this way. So there is a certain level of discomfort tolerance, what, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but that idea, I made up that term just now versus like pain tolerance that when it's painful, well, then maybe not something that you should push through, but when it's uncomfortable, is it, I don't know. Right. Well, I think there's also an acclimation piece, right? So we get acclimated to, okay, I've, you know, jogged for a block. Let me walk for a block. Now let me try and do the next time I go out. Let me see if I jog for a block and a half, right? But pain, as you're saying, is very different than discomfort. And we have to sort of know our bodies to know the difference. Oh, does this hurt? Or am I just, is this awkward and I'm uncomfortable? Yeah. I'm remembering one of the chapters that you authored. It was something that really stood out to me is that the idea of there's a certain level of disconnect from your physical experience that has to happen because of this discomfort, especially in the beginning, or even thinking about, oh, I just want to give up, or this is too hard. So there has to be a certain level of disconnect, which I find so tricky, um, especially after several of the conversations we've had on the podcast about dissociation, and that can potentially get to a harmful place. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit to the disconnect versus dissociation where is that fine line? Is there a fine line? Yeah, it's interesting. 
interesting. When I first learned about dissociation, I really learned of it as like something that is bad and we shouldn't do it or not even bad, but maybe self-protective, right? Like, and something that we don't necessarily have control over. And then I was in a lecture actually at the White Institute early on and was talking about dissociation. There's they write about it a lot. And they said, you know, I think if you ever cross 42nd street in New York, you have to dissociate a little bit because it's scary. You have to just like focus on where you're going and not pay attention to the various different angles and, and means of transportation of people coming at you. That's true. You'll probably get hit by a bus. <laughs> right. And that really stuck with me in this way that like, that's still self-protective, but it's minimal. So we can do something functional. I can cross the street and pay attention and get across the street without getting too distracted from the various other stimulations going on. And so in some ways, if we can frame it like that, we could think of some level of association could be healthy. And in the chapter, I think what you're referencing to is what I'm talking about, perhaps more distance runners where your body just goes into a zone too, of just kind of automatic one foot in front of the other. But that's also part of when I think when you talk to people about the runner's high, one of the things that they talk about too is this ability to be present, but also kind of not present, which in the terms of that we're talking, that's the dissociation piece. Like I can be present, I can be on the road running and paying attention to what I'm doing, but I'm a little bit dissociating from all of the traffic that maybe is on my left side or my right side. And, and it's tricky when there's, this idea of what's pain, what's discomfort, because we don't want to dissociate from pain. We want to be able to say, oh, hmm, all right, something feels like it's tweaked in my leg. Let me slow down and pay attention. And you have a choice there. I think a lot of folks, particularly if we go back to this idea of unhealthy relationship, go, oh, I have a pain in my leg. I'm just going to run through it. And then you teach your brain, like dissociate, disconnect from that feeling, keep pushing. And that's also where I mean, over and over, you'll see injuries happen from that. Like, oh, I sort of knew I should have stopped, but I just kept going and then it felt fine. It's not that it felt fine. It's that you disconnected from the pain. Yeah. I'm thinking about this thing that was, I don't even know what the concept was, but it was really popular a couple of years ago. I think it was like the mind over body. It was like this book. Do you know what I'm talking about? There was this book that people were so into mind over body that you sort of just basically disconnect from your body and you can tolerate any level of pain. And I was like, I don't know if that sounds like such a good idea. Yes. No? I do remember that book. <laughs> I just finished a different book with that same idea that you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And, and this person was like doing, I don't know, ultra marathons with like broken feet, literally that he was taping oh, up and I'm like, let this book be published. Like, and that's his philosophy, <laughs> just push through it. And like, you can master your mind is kind of the idea. But I think this is one of the problems, particularly as an eating disorder specialist that we face is these are the messages people get about exercise all the time. Like you should just be able to do it regardless of anything else. And so we really have to work with folks to untangle those beliefs that like, oh no, if you have a broken leg, you shouldn't tape it and keep going. You need to get on some crutches and go watch a movie. But that's really not in the culture what we're taught to do. And I think also we can expand this conversation not only to physical pain, which is obviously important to avoid injuries, but also to emotional pain or just emotions in general, which is, I think, a a lot less tangible of a conversation because it's like, it's not that I have a pain in my knee and I'm going to scale back. 
Is this connected to something that's uncomfortable emotionally? How do I understand that? How do I put these pieces together? But I think there is an element of disconnecting from our emotional experience in the running. Yes. Well, so I guess maybe my question here is, if that's the case for someone, how do they start to tease that apart? Meaning like how my emotions potentially are connected with my relationship with running. Am I using this to regulate any sort of painful emotions? How do I even begin to understand that about myself? Well, I think it's something that a therapist would be helpful in. Uh, (laughs) Plug there. (laughs) I'm all with you. So, but if we think about it, and again, the idea isn't that it's a bad thing that we're using some form of movement to regulate our emotions. It's knowing so, right? It's the same thing with emotional eating that people talk about. Like emotional eating is so natural. I can tell you exactly what it felt like when my grandmother would cook such a random reference, like these popovers that she used to make that <laughs> everyone were convinced had some leavening agent in them. And so I like cooking those and thinking of my grandmother and it's an emotional experience. It's not a bad thing, right? It's just when that gets out of control and the only thing I'm doing when I'm upset is like binging. And so if, if we can think about it like that, again, like it's okay to use this, to use any tool, as long as then you're also aware, okay, I was feeling really sad. I did this as some means of self-care. Do I feel a little better? Am I ignoring the sadness or am I trying to work through it and tolerate and be able to get through my next whatever meeting, dinner, whatever it is? It's the sort of like pounding that happens of like, oh, okay, I went out for a run because I felt sad. Now I don't feel better. So I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. That's we could say something that needs to be worked through. Like, oh, okay, that didn't work. Do you have another idea of something that might make you feel better? Or you know what? Maybe you just have to sit in this sadness and tolerate that and work through it. It's okay to be sad. So I'm not exactly sure if that answered your question, but. No, it does. And I think you're right in terms of the intricacies of organizing our internal experience and working through some of the painful emotions that we might have that feel intolerable. It's not really so realistic to expect ourselves to be able to do it on our own. And so definitely seeing a therapist is important. Even as you're talking, I'm thinking about this more of a general experience. So my general relationship with running or movement, and then my general emotional experience. So the idea that it's not only just this one thing happened, and then I'm going to go for a run and that's not going to do it enough, or maybe it's going to do it and it's just going to help. It's my entire approach to emotions is, yeah, they can hang out over there, but I'm going to hang out over here. And it's just sort of like this disconnect, different parts that are just not really coming together. Right. Right. And if we think about it, I don't remember if this is in the chapter I sent you or not, but like a varying self states, which is sort of the analytic model in terms of parts, right? It's like, the self-state of who you are when you're running is definitely going to be different than the self-state that's journaling and really like trying to be in touch with your emotion. But if you can merge those two aspects of yourself, that's sort of where we have a healthy identity, a healthy self. But it's not the like, oh yeah, I know I was journaling about this and I'm sad, but F this, I'm going to forget about it and go do these other things, right? Yeah. It's so interesting. It's also sort of my experience of people, let's say when they come to me and I'm the therapist, they have one sort of almost demeanor and then with their friends or on their run, it's a completely different story. 
And I think the information is in the disconnect that they almost don't match the same person. Yes. Right. And that's the goal oftentimes, even if people don't know it, of therapy is to merge these parts of yourself, but not to always wear the same hat. I mean, of course, we're going to be a little bit of a different person with our friends than we would with our coworkers, than we would with our kids or, you know, it's just how different. Yeah. On that topic, just when people say come into therapy, I'm curious if you've seen any sort of difference in how people come in with their expectations about what their movement, especially running, will look like in recovery. Um, And I think you had alluded to this also. I wanted to ask you a follow-up question, but just sort of like, what's been your experience with people's expectation of, are they coming in and saying, oh, you're not going to allow me to run at all, so I don't really want to do this? Or do you even see that come up at all? Um, And when I say it, I mean people's expectations of what their movement can look like in recovery. Yeah. What's really interesting about me in particular is that a lot of the referrals I get are from folks who might quote unquote sell someone coming to therapy with me because I'm a runner or because I will advocate for them to continue movement. It's something I've been noticing in the past, maybe two years of just, I get a fair amount of referrals from sports medicine doctors, that kind of thing. And so the expectation is in place. Like, oh, if I go to this person, I can keep doing what I'm doing, which is not always true. Often we need to moderate that. We need to investigate what does one's relationship with their body and food look like before. So, and I've been talking a little bit about this and here's another plug. I'm shopping for an agent for a book. I've been writing about this subject that I very oh, that's fun. Yeah. I very strongly believe that movement should be incorporated in one's journey to recovery from eating disorders and addiction, actually. But I think that's because it's really hard to teach folks to intuitively eat and be in tune with their body and have body acceptance if they just feel like, okay, my body's so vastly different than what I what it was I'm working on untangling that. How do I feel good about my body, not about the way it looks, if I don't have a way to connect with it positively? And that could be having a dance party in your kitchen that feels good and you can feel like, oh, my mood has shifted from bouncing around. Or it could be something structured like exercise, whether that's running a spin class, a yoga class. And so I think that movement can often be the bridge that helps people go into recovery in a way that they can reach the sort of body neutrality or body idea that that everyone's preaching in a way of like, oh, right, I can feel proud of what my body can do because I'm doing something with it. And again, whatever that is, could be singing while you're mopping. It doesn't really matter, but just some form of movement. Do you ever do that thing where you're mopping and you use the mop as your microphone? That's fun. <laughs> that is fun. Yes. Yes. We have this, like also this toy cleaning set downstairs and we like all take one of the like toy brooms or mops or whatever. And we like have a little <laughs> band often. Uh, oh, that's fun. Yeah. I'm curious if there are ever situations then in your mind that do require a pause from running in recovery. Yeah. I mean, I think when people have bone injuries, they need to pause. You know, there might be some form of, again, there's, I always make the distinction between movement and exercise as something that's structured versus unstructured. So maybe someone can have some movement, some stretching, something like that. But if you have a bone injury, 
for the most part, you may need to pause at least the primary activity that sort of you got that injury during. And then I think there's a weight stabilization piece. You know, I'm very aligned with health at every size, so we don't generally like to talk about weight. But when we're talking about participating in exercise, particularly structured exercise, we need to make sure our labs are okay and our body is at a place where it is functioning. And so, you know, we can look to menstruation for that. We can look to, and again, when working with people who are under nourish and underweight, bone density becomes a problem. And it's one that is generally irreversible. So I think that needs to be corrected before one can continue. But I get a lot of folks in my practice who are like on a scholarship for, you know, a sport, or maybe they do that somewhat professionally and it gets really tricky. Yeah. What do you do with that? It depends on the severity of things. I mean, there are sometimes ways in which people can continue being part of a team without competing one year. If you have a really understanding coach, they might find something for you to do on that team. (laughs) I'm laughing because, you know, find a really understanding coach is also needle in a haystack. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. I think when people are open to having a team approach, whether that like the dietitian, the therapist, the coach, and those, it, it can be worked out. Or sometimes like some college kids may have to take a semester off. There are generally ways where you don't lose your scholarship necessarily, but it's a very painful thing to kind of lose a whole, like every aspect of your identity in one fracture. Yeah, which is, I'm assuming, part of the reason why you are of the mind, let's try to keep this in your life as much as we can, unless we absolutely can't. Because there is so much identity and purpose connected for an athlete in particular. Yes, absolutely. And empowerment. I mean, if we think of oh, totally, women in particular, I think that it's, we're not really taught to feel empowered in our bodies. And so if, whatever that is, again, like if you're doing yoga and do like, I can't do a handstand. So I always feel like that would be feel, feel really cool if I could, right? Like, <laughs> I'm sure that feels really great. And so if we could keep you doing something that feels really good to you and empowered, and that gives you a sense of agency with your body, that's important. And sometimes again, like this for me, when I work with people can often be the bridge to get them a little bit untangled with their food movement, eating disorder, And just have to make sure this is sort of where the fine line comes in, that it doesn't border on this is the thing that I feel good about. This is sort of what regulates my self-esteem as opposed to it just sort of is part of this larger picture of empowerment, you know, sort of figuring out where that fine line is for each particular person is tricky. Totally. I like to use this metaphor. Like if your identity is made up of slices of pie, it should be a pumpkin pie, not something like a blueberry pie that if you took one slice out, the whole thing would come sort of caving in and be- I like that. I'm going to use that if you don't mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But right. If you slice, I just like pumpkin pie. So, but the pie otherwise stays intact, right? And you can fill in that slice easily. But that, and that's often how I think of identity. So you're right. It cannot be the one piece that holds everything together. That's unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, me talking to the analyst part of you, I'm curious if you can sort of like bring in some of the past experience stuff and maybe family dynamics that might be playing into someone's maybe using running a little bit more than is particularly serving to them. Yeah. I think, you know, if we think about early attachment, um, a lot of times 
this is true of many behaviors, right? When kids, children are seeking some kind of attachment with a parental figure, they do what feels like gets them praise, right? So a lot of the people I end up working with in a variety of sports, right? They find when we dig a little deeper, they got into this sport and they continued it because it was something they would feel as though they felt connected to one of their primary caregivers over. And often that is because of the praise piece, like, oh, look at Jane, she's doing that, you know. And if we can think about does the attachment go deeper than that? Is that your sense of self? Is that someone else's sense of self that you merged with and you never quite individuated? And and this is true with eating disorders in general. A lot of times we look at those primary caregiver relationships to see where does one's body development of their sense of their body come from. And so very often it's the whatever the female caregiver, if one has one is, because that can be a reflection for girls in what they think their body is. So if you grew up with a parent who was constantly saying, oh, I can't eat that. It will make me look bad. I don't want to gain weight. You know, you become very insecure in your own body of, oh, well, if I eat that, what does that mean about me? Even if you don't have the language to understand that, that's what's taken in. And so often movement can be a way to merge with that parent and feel like there's a level of acceptance there. Yeah. I'm thinking about especially college age students. And I mean, it happens so often because there's a large emphasis on sports for most colleges. And so that just ends up happening. But what's significant about college is that this is the first time very often where they're physically separated from their caregivers. And that's a physical manifestation of individuation or separation. And the question is, how am I able to do that? And if I am not able to do that in sort of a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a healthy way, then, well, then (laughs) I guess this happens. Right. Well, and again, like even that college is often that time, but truly an individuation should happen well before that, where we have a sense of ourselves in the world, right? So it can be jarring in that way of, oh, my parents are across the country a few hours away, whatever it is. But ideally we have some sense of ourselves before that. Yeah. I'm wondering if we think we can think about the entire idea of running sort of in a metaphorical understanding and, and sort of the way that I conceptualize some things is what are you running away from, which is a very symbolic, I guess, way to look at this. And I'm curious if you have any ideas on that piece. Yeah, I think that's actually a question I ask people a lot, particularly runners that I'm working with. Are you running towards something? You're running away from something? Because Oh, that's a good question. Again, sort of to echo your sentiment of, for lack of a better term, that's also a way in which we think about, like, is this healthy or is this unhealthy? Is it serving you or not? This isn't a great comparison, but if someone is sharing a really good glass of wine with a friend and they're tasting it and they're just kind of talking, that's a very different experience than going home, pouring yourself a glass of wine and sort of mindlessly drinking it. Right. And so I think of that as, again, like, what are you using this for? Is it to disconnect? Is it to get through something? Is it to shut off? Or is it to have a shared experience to honor that, you know, experience the, whether it's social or just something that you taste and feel and, you know, feels good in your body. But the metaphoric piece, if you speak to 
runners, there's often a lot of reasons that bring joy to someone. I'm running towards, you know, running friendships can be a really special thing. I'm building a sense of community. It's the time I get away alone where I can have some me time. It can be a moving meditation. It can be a sense of just pleasure in one's body, those kinds of things. Or it can be this place of like, I ate this and I shouldn't have, and I'm going to go punish myself and I'm running away from like, I'm punishing myself and trying to get rid of something is a very different experience. Yeah. So it's basically all about the why, why are you doing this? What's driving it? And that's going to be individual for each person. Yes. So just in the interest of taking a lot of the information that we've spoken about today and putting it into maybe a little bit more of tangible steps, what's important to work toward healing one's relationship with movement or running in just like a, a couple of tidbits, if you will? Yeah. One of the things I, I like to have people do is write sort of their goals of why they want to do any kind of movement, right? And look at that. And then when they decide, okay, today's the day I'm gonna, whatever, go for a run. Okay. What's my, what's my motivation here and pause before lacing up your sneakers or before going out the door and think about that. And then when you get back, think about, okay, here was the list. Maybe write down, how do you feel? How do you feel in your body? How does your mind feel? Like, what can we hold on to? I think that's a really good way of doing things. Like if we again, to use food as a metaphor, like if we eat something, we generally know if we like it or not, we remember that. But what happens with movement so often is we move on to the next thing and we forget what we feel like afterwards. So I like people to actually jot it down, put a note in your phone, if not a handwritten note. And then I also like people to pay attention to their thoughts while they're doing that movement. Is it positive? Are you, and it's okay if it's actually not about the movement at all, but if it's like this awful, I can't wait for this to be over. It's probably not a movement that you should engage in because that's not an enjoyable experience. Of course, that may happen sometimes during a particularly hard interval or something, but if your general sense is you can't wait for it to be over, that's really not a, creating a positive connection. So if you can maybe be aware of your thought process while you're running. Yes, but that's where the like pause button of right before you go and right after think about it for even just two minutes. Yeah. I also think that what you said earlier is probably going to be first is an important point. I wanted to re-highlight is the idea of healing specifically physically, but also emotionally is that if there's something that feels off in your body or there's a bone injury or any form of an injury, that's a sign to take it slow, i.e. don't run at all. And then you can come back when the injury is healed because there's no way to heal your relationship with movement if you're running on an injured knee or something. Absolutely. And you know, now that you say that, something I didn't say in the beginning of like, how do we determine what's quote unquote unhealthy versus healthy is one's relationship to rest. Like, can you say, Ooh, yeah. I'm tired, I'm actually not gonna work out today or I'm not gonna run, or even, even if this was on my plan, I'm listening to my body. So even before we get to the place where maybe I'm injured, it's like, how do you tolerate those days where you, you're just too tired to do it? Yeah. And that's okay. Almost bordering on, I'm, I'm trying to think of people who perhaps use it a little bit in a way that doesn't particularly serve them. It can border on self-harm. So we do have to be very, I'm not finding my English today, very cognizant of that. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, totally. Yeah. This is a really helpful conversation. I really appreciate you joining us today. Maybe before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Yes. My website for my clinical practice is intuitivepsychotherapynyc.com. And then probably the easiest place is on Instagram at embodied psychotherapist. And I have you know the link tree there with my email and everything from there. And okay. And thank then you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Yeah. And maybe we can circle back when your book is like a thing. Yes. I would love that. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited yes. for that one. All right. Thanks again. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.